Hello. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. We are awfully glad to have you. It is the year of our Lord, 2024. It's uh, great to be alive, and it's great to be with you. I happen to be in Connecticut. That's why I'm wearing my Pacific Northwest hat here, the Oregon Ducks, just to remind me that uh, I spend most of my time in the Pacific Northwest, and then also to irritate all the people in my church who hate the Ducks. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, uh, we're in the state of Washington, but even if we were uh, in Oregon, I feel like uh, I'm pretty confident my people would support the Beavers. Anyway, (laughs) enough of that. I'm going to take the hat off. I'm done with that. (laughs) Anyway, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, philosophy, and ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. I'm in Connecticut, and I think we have the yard goats. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the Connecticut yard goats. That's what I mean. And yeah, yeah, the, the, the Hartford yard goats. The Hartford yard goats. That's our, that's our independent baseball league team. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, a yard goat is an engine that works in train yards, moving trains around, but doesn't actually leave the yard. It just sort of shuffles them where they need to be. Why you would want to name a team after that, I still haven't figured out. But um, it's a cool name. You got you to give it that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I'm Glenn Sunshine. <laughs> I used to live near Hartford, but I am currently in South Bend, Indiana. Um, well, Granger, which is right next door, Notre Dame country. And uh, a senior a fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. I've got my own 501c3, Every Square Inch Ministries and uh, do freelance uh, speaking and other such things. Okay, great. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I failed to mention that, and I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a lot of things. And I'm working right now on an article that will be a uh, op-ed piece for World Magazine, and it's the theme of our show. And the theme of the show is the betrayal of the evangelical elites, or maybe the Benedict Arnoldization of the evangelical elites, or something along that line. Um, the uh, senior editor uh, for the op-ed page uh, at uh, World Magazine, uh, for for those who aren't aware, uh, uh, World Magazine has a very active online uh, presence, and there is an there's an op-ed page that uh, is featured there that is really overseen. Uh, by Al Mohler, but uh, in terms of the day-to-day operation, it's uh, Andrew T. Walker. And uh, he, so he's my uh, editor there, and I've uh, published half a dozen op-eds there. And I, I posted a uh, something on X slash Twitter that inspired him to ask me to write something and uh, so what I want to do is uh, pull that up. And it was basically something that uh, was on the theme of um, uh, Mark Studdock uh, in uh, That Hideous Strength. And what I was reflecting on in the, in the piece was uh, the seduction uh, of Studdock that brought him into the inner ring of the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, uh, which is made up of people who are not very nice. And so here was the, here was the um, uh, Chris, original yep, tweet. Uh, okay, you, go ahead. You, you might want to mention that we are in that hideous strength. Yeah. 
For those right. of you who don't know who Mark Studdick is and don't know the plot, we're in a, a novel by C.S. Lewis. Right. Yeah, very good point, Glenn. And uh, in that novel, there are two circles. There's a circle at uh, St. Anne's, which is made up of the good guys. And then there's a circle at the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, who are as uh, unnice as you can be. Uh, they're vile, wicked people. But anyway, uh, the story uh, revolves around two characters, uh, Mark, who is seduced by the nice, and Jane, who is recruited into St. Anne's. And, and it's fascinating to, to watch uh, how the process works in either case, uh, how the, they enter into the inner circle or the inner ring. But this is the piece that, or the post that I made that led uh, Andrew to ask me to write something. And it, it, it reads as follows. Rereading that hideous strength, I'm fascinated by the seduction of Mark Studdick into the inner, or the inner ring of the nice. They're interested in him because of his ability to write. He's already compromised his integrity, putting his rhetorical abilities into the service of an unprincipled utilitarian sociology in the academy. But it's his way with words that makes him valuable to the nice. He psyops, as we put it today, but for him to be effective, something of the older medieval and classical ways with words have to be present. The bloodless calculus of the nice only appeals to technicians and button pushers, but it's the way he's drawn in that I think is truly instructive. He's made to feel insecure, then flattered, then threatened, then flattered again. And throughout this process, he lies to himself and finds it easier to lie to others. It seems to me that some evangelical elites have gone through something similar. Now they identify with an inner ring and are somewhat embarrassed by the rest of us, but their membership in the, the ring is based entirely on their tacit promises to keep the rest of us in line. So uh, Andrew said, hey, I like that. Write something for me. <laughs> but he, I think his thinking was already moving along this line because he had published something just a few days prior uh, in National Review. And that piece, so he's a guest editorialist at National Review, uh, and his piece is entitled, Can Evangelical Journalists Say Anything Good About Evangelicals? <laughs> and so I've got a few things, and you guys have read that piece but let's reflect on this a little bit. What is it about uh, people like Russell Moore and David French and anybody else, including Tim Keller, who gets on a soapbox at the New York Times or the Atlantic? And what, what is it you know, about uh, those guys that they use those opportunities to basically excoriate the rest of us um, and uh, not say anything for us? I mean, I, I think about someone like Chuck Colson, somebody you knew, Glenn. Now, there was a guy who didn't need to prove anything to anybody. He was part of the elite. He'd fallen from grace. It's true. But uh, I can remember when Chuck Colson would have op-eds in places like the you know, Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, and he never used his opportunity to, to make the rest of us look like a bunch of buffoons. Uh, yes. he, he, he would try to use those opportunities to say something for Christ. Right. Yeah. And what what he would also do, I mean, you're right. He he didn't have this tendency to beat up on evangelicals that that we see kind of right and left among evangelical elites today. But he also had 
was completely unapologetic about speaking up about pro-life issues and things like that, um, even in uh, op-eds in these these major you know uh, rags out there. Uh, I well, as the NRO article pointed out, I have yet to see any of these guys say anything about a social issue that would be in the least bit controversial in a uh, left-wing academy. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the thing I'm wondering is, is what happened? Mm-hmm. Abby, any thoughts? I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot going on there, um, obviously. And it's not easy just to hit, hit on one or two particular things. I mean, we cover a lot of the things I think that have happened regularly. Um, but I, one of the things that just kind of comes as an impression is what you mentioned a little while ago is this, this notion of seduction um, and, and the way in which there is a valuation of something the world has to offer that is seducing and it is something that those that get closer to it, who used to resist it, find alluring, attractive in one of the first steps into being considered part of that group or identifying with it is having to negate everything that you were about before or that your label is tagged with. Um, and there, there are a lot of things to criticize, you know, in terms of you know, modern expressions of, of a classic faith. Okay. But those are the things that are criticized are not those things, you know, you know what I'm saying? And then there are a lot, there are a lot, and I think we all could do more to emphasize the strengths and riches that even modern expressions of evangelical faith have consistently fought for and held firm to. And these are the very things that the culture is at war with. And these are the same things that, that embarrass those that want to be liked and affirmed and brought into that seduction. So the interesting thing here is let's play around a little bit with this notion of seduction. Um, I think that term expresses more than just um, a kind of cultural valuation of, of the elite. It's talking about something spiritual and alluring. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that when you read uh, That Hideous Strength, uh, Lewis is writing about academics. Both Jane and Mark are academics. And Lewis uh, had the experience of being both an insider and an outsider. Um, Many people are unfamiliar with his troubles at Oxford. Uh, Those of us who are, you know, fans of C.S. Lewis and look at his life from a distance have no clue that he faced great, a great deal of uh, opposition and hostility at Oxford. Uh, he uh, never got the promotions that, uh, you know, he, he deserved. Um, he was voted down over things like, um, you know, that hideous strength, <laughs> the, the very things that endear uh, him to us were the things that made him uh, unacceptable uh, at Oxford. Uh, I remember reading uh, an account, I can't recall where, but it was about one of the times that I think it was Tolkien had really gone to bat for Lewis to get a chair at, at Oxford. And this is a guy who had written enough high-quality work in his own discipline to definitely deserve it. 
Um, and he was voted down. And when one of the people who voted against him was asked why, he said, um, screw tape letters. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And they, yeah, well, that you, you could, again, because, of, you know, the, the prejudices and the unwillingness to listen to what Lewis was up to, um, clearly, it's just like throwing out the label evangelical. I remember when, um, prior to my go going as a student at Oxford, I remember that it had been ages, other than through Wycliffe Hall with Alistair McGrath, for an evangelical to hold an, uh, a, a major post there. And it was really just within five to ten years before me going there that you had Oliver O'Donovan given, which was, you know, British evangelical. And so, you know, you wrote the famous uh, textbook on evangelical ethics, first time written of that caliber in ages. And he was, like Lewis, an immense intellectual that had gained the respect in their areas, areas of expertise. But even still, the amount of shifting and change that happened was minimal having those figures. And now you wouldn't find anything like him or John Webster there. Yeah, yeah. It, I witnessed the, the hostility when I was at Harvard Divinity. Um, I remember Harvey Cox, who was a good guy. Harvey, yeah. uh, you know, he was actually a fair-minded liberal. And he made, made a point of inviting evangelicals to attend the school. That's how I ended up there, but also, uh, trying to get, tried to get them in to, to lecture. And he was even, uh, behind an attempt to bring in Mark Knoll as a, a, a faculty member at the divinity school. I mean, is there, if there's anybody in the evangelical world who deserved that platform, it was Mark Knoll. I mean, and it, it wasn't like Mark Knoll was like, uh, some kind of homeboy who is always cheering for his home team or something like that. Yeah. He was an authority on American religion, religious life, yeah. American yeah. Christianity, generally speaking. Um, and everybody knew that, but it was his, it was his, uh, uh, membership in the evangelical tribe that got him turned down. That was it. That was all. Yeah, I, th I think that there are a couple of things along the way here that we need to consider. One of them is that we are almost inevitably affected by the water we swim in. And so when you have people, you know, maybe with firm evangelical commitments who are in the academy that is very uh, left wing, you will find them adopting the ideas of the people around them. I mean, it, it just, it's almost an inevitability. We're influenced by the people that we, uh, we hang around with. Um, you know, what is the phrase in scripture? Bad company corrupts good morals. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, so I think that that's part of it. Uh, I think that's a lot of what happened with Tim Keller, that he just simply spent too much time in Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But th there's another side to this that, uh, that we can't, ignore, and that's the Trump effect. Um, because although you start, you, there is a drift before then. Trump was a polarizing figure. And it seems that the, you know, whatever you think of Trump, um, it seems that the people who decided that they had to adamantly oppose him on the grounds of his character 
then felt it necessary to oppose him in every way on the ground of his policies, and then the policies that were advocated by his supporters. In an effort to distance themselves from Trump, they had to reject everything that he was doing and everything that his supporters wanted. And I think that that is part of the dynamic of what's going on with someone like a David French. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I also think that many of these trends were well developed. And I think mm. my, my, my thought is, is that the Trump phenomenon was more of a kind of parting of the of a of a, a, a set of groups that had already been drifting apart for a long time. So, yeah, yeah know, I think are, I think it was the crisis that really led to the major break. But yeah. I, but I don't you know I I agree with you that there's stuff that was going on beforehand. But this is where it, it seems to me it really accelerated and created the kind of fracturing that that we see going on between the evangelical elites and the non-elites. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I Tom. think that's what brought it to a head. Yeah, and, and, and I was thinking, I mean, in one sense, evangelicals had nowhere to go. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Trump is a liberal. He isn't a conservative. No. And the left has, you know, is at war with enlightenment liberalism in many ways, not in every way. They carry, they carry its bag on one end under terms, still effective terms like progress and rights, but those are cloaks and they're rhetorical cloaks. They're, they play the same function as traditional theology played for the liberal when they infused it with something else, right? And so this kind of postmodern left, which the kind of Democratic Party has run with, identity politics and and, you know, in, in the extreme vehemence against um, modernism, in, you know, in, in the caricature form that they reject it, kind of classical liberalism, if you will, uh, and its variants. So they have lumped basically conservatives having nowhere to run, really, than it, politically in the U.S., other than sort of Republican or Democrat, um, naturally held on to a lot of those things that Trump was willing to hold on to, to, you know, to, to actually take them along with him, things like pro-life and, and, you know, some, some notion of a, of a support for, for uh, traditional marriage and things like that. And somebody willing to fight those because evangelical leaders surely weren't doing it. Right. I mean, they've kind of backed up to not having a form of, of representation that they, they may have used to had. They, they got to basically focusing on inner church things and not so much the cultural, political, you know, arena. And yeah, I'd like to introduce a little wrinkle to this because I think all, you know, you've, you've both made very good points. But I think that the thing that I have kind of uh, identified as the, the, the deep sort of heart issue is just that, the sentiments. Um what what I uh, so when Trump was running, you know, in 2016, I was like many people, just kind of incredulous, and I'd never watched him on television. I I didn't care for him. Uh, <laughs> and I thought he was kind of a clown, clownish. And then I actually heard him say a few things, and I thought, hold it, I haven't heard anybody talk like this since Pat Buchanan. 
Um, and I thought there is a huge uh, body of people out there who've been waiting for this message and no one has been willing and, and on e- either side, uh, Clinton uh, and Obama, they would yeah. every once in a while make a little head, head nod in a particular direction, but they didn't really mean it. No one really believed him. Um, and what am I getting at? I'm talking about blue collar manufacturing Rust Belt America stuff. Uh, man, you know, I'm talking about people who hunt uh, people who own guns and who very often have supported uh, the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So when I was driving through Western Pennsylvania in 2016, I saw Trump signs everywhere. I didn't see a single Hillary Clinton sign anywhere in Western Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a that was a that, that was an area that went for Obama twice. Mm-hmm. And I thought it's over. Now the people uh, in you know New York don't know it's over. Uh, the people in Washington don't know it's over. They, they, because they have, they have zero uh, affect, affection for these people. There was a time when maybe, you know, a person like Bobby Kennedy or Hubert Humphrey or uh, Lyndon Johnson or, uh, you know, someone uh, on the old Democratic left would be able to get up and actually make a convincing stump speech in a factory in, in like Canton, Ohio, <laughs> or something like that. You know, they don't have anybody like that now. I mean, uh, may, maybe you think that Joe Biden can do it, but everybody is like rolling their eyes. You know, yeah, he, he maybe, you know, had a childhood in, in a blue collar family, but he is so far from that now that yeah. no one buys it. Uh, so, there's nobody over there that can make a convincing case for blue collar America. Trump, yes, Trump grew up uh, and went to prep school and was wealthy and all that kind of stuff. But he he worked w- with people who worked with their hands. He he's a a real estate guy. He's a developer. He works with guys who wear hard hats, and he gets out on the job all the time. He demonstrates that he knows the way to, to communicate with that crowd, and they they have a kind of uh, almost a bashed affection for him. Um, it's so so it's almost like the more you criticize this guy, the more they like him. And this is the thing that the the David Frenches of the world are completely clueless about. These are people when I when I look at those people, I think, you know. I don't know if you know anybody uh, besides, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, a few New York Trump supporters. You know, it, you remember, remember when Nixon won uh, back, I think, in 72, and there was this uh, society woman in New York, and she said, how could that have happened? Nobody I know voted for him. <laughs> I mean, they, they live in this epistemic bubble. They, they, they have zero... Uh, you know, sort of affection for these people. Now, that's a very broad group. And some of those people are evangelicals, but not all of them. I mean, we're basically talking about the people who like, uh, you know, studio wrestling and, uh, you know, televangelists and uh, football. (laughs) You know, and, and there are a lot of them out there and they vote. And uh, very often they're likable. Like any group of people, there are going to be some jerks. But they're very often very likable people who will pull over if they see you broken down in your car and actually get out and help you and know what to do. Unlike a lot of other people who would just call somebody on their cell phone. 
<laughs> you know, I'm getting it. So, so this, this, I think there's a social class dimension to this that I don't think evangelicalism uh, wants to touch. Yeah, I, I think the class issue is really important here as well. I think you've, you've definitely got your finger on something there. It's not only class, it's geography. Yep. You know, it's it's um, East Coast, big cities, West Coast, um, uh, maybe the Chicago area. You know, it, it it's these places that are liberal bastions where these guys are either located or or they want the approval of people who are there because they seem to be the movers and the shakers. And I suspect they're telling themselves, well, you know, we have to do this in order to have it, even to have a seat at the table with them. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really sure that's the true motivation. I mean, I'm, I, it's hard to psychoanalyze people. Well, well but, and, yeah. and, I, and I think there's something that you have to keep in mind, especially when you look at, take the left, for example, and what they're up to. Who do they make the scapegoat, typically, of all the cultural problems? The group you're talking about, right? Right. Um, and even though they would have traditionally been, say, the Democratic Party, been promoting, at least in word, the worker, the, you know, the, the one who has to fight the odds. Now they've become basically all white supremacists if they hold to valuing their country at value its traditions. And so, but what you have in the left is that it stirs its groups and also becomes an allure of seduction to those who, who want to be part of the meaning field is it has a, a quasi-religious dimension. That man isn't just about economics alone. This was the you kept hearing Trump, everybody's doing better, everybody's doing better. But guess what? They could get their their droves out under the name of social justice, George Floyd, and you know, all the the differing threats that they create. I mean, it, it's a pseudo-religious movement, the left. It is tapping into the void that liberals and the left have no religion. It gives them a religious cause. And that has a seduction to it that will make those that used to be for the underdog turn against the underdog to be a part of that, the attractiveness of that, that religious vision. It's definitely at play there. Um, but it has left that, that whole group of people that once upon a time would have also been there politically to, to be addressing those kind of issues that affect the marginalized or the the lower end of the so socioeconomics, you know, ladder that be there for them has now become a, a war against them. Say the the lower or middle class people against the kind of inner city poor people, and so you you've created all these polarizations that were not the same back when you know, like you mentioned, previous figures were there. It was pretty easy to tap who would go with who and which groups would be for or against something. Here, it, there's a lot of sinister threads pitting various people against each, each other. And we've touched on this before. The people who are being, uh, uh, you know, uh, slighted or slandered uh, are the, very often the people who make the, the machinery of the country run. I mean, we're talking about people who fight fires, uh, who fight crime, um, meaning policemen and firemen. Um, you know, we're talking about construction workers. You know, if you if you drive uh, down the street uh, or along the highway in Portland or Seattle, you'll see uh, hundreds and thousands of these men, and they're and they're almost all men. 
And it's because the nature of the work is so demanding and physically taxing and, and requires strength um, that uh, that is the case. And my suspicion is that even if many of those guys have to belong to a union and that union uh, gives uh, visible support to uh, the Democratic Party, a, a large uh, portion of them, maybe even a majority, actually voted for Trump. Um, and the reason is, is because of the, it's a, it's a matter of the heart. Here's a, here's a guy who uh, is uh, sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes is accused of things that are just absurd. Um, and just you just wait a few news cycles and it comes out that he had nothing to do with what they said. <laughs> you know, take the Russian, you know, sort of collusion thing. You know, it's all obvious now that it was a Hillary Clinton sort of deep state, uh, you know, f- uh, sort of plot or drummed up falsehood. Um, and I don't follow this stuff, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, faithfully or anything. I'm not a, a, a political junkie or anything. Uh, I'm more interested in the fact that uh, here's a group of here's a group of people uh, who really are uh, even in the the Presbyterian Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, really the backbone of the denomination. Uh, and uh, right now, the PCA is as divided uh, as it's ever been. Uh, yeah. There's been a recent. Um, issue of by faith magazine and and one of the uh, leaders of the denomination made that very point and what is it what well it's it's this very same phenomenon played out in the church uh so in the pca we had a, a little sort of clandestine group a cabal known as the national partnership which is pretty much debunked or not debunked but de, uh, de, defunct defunct that's the word i was looking for defunct and uh and now uh the you know since it has kind of been uh outed you know we had actually a a, a membership dump all their emails were made va- available uh uh online and you could you could go through them and i could i could actually see conversations about me <laughs> they were talking about me and how to stop me and things yeah. like that and yeah. and i'm like this is nuts. So, so you have this this group, uh, and then you have this l- very large group of sort of middle America, southern, you know, sort of lower middle class, working class, even middle class guys who faithfully attend church and support their, you know, ministries, uh, their tithe dollars and stuff like that, and and they're just being ignored and sometimes even ridiculed and. Um, sidelined. Uh, now, the good news is that, is that in the PCA over the last three or four, since the debacle in Dallas, uh, a number of the people who we were concerned about have left the denomination, and uh, a lot of ruling elders uh, have come out in large numbers to the General Assemblies and have helped to uh, address some things. It's not over, uh, but, but this parallel is a fascinating one, and it does tie into what you're talking about, Glenn. Eastern, urban, Western, urban, you know, people who have aspirations to belong, uh, who uh, are embarrassed by the rest of us. Um, Now, this brings up something I'd like to reflect on. So I I grew up uh, in a family that uh, has a lot of education, 
a lot of culture. I mean, artsy people. I, I could name people in my family, my extended family, that uh, maybe even some of our listeners would know who they are. Um, but it was precisely because of the stuff I saw in that environment that I'm inoculated. I could go to Harvard and just think, just kind of roll my eyes at stuff, be completely unimpressed. I've been invited into inner rings and turned them down. I just like in disgust. Um, and I've been able to, uh, you know, over the course of my life, kind of curate things to the place where I'm aligned with a lot of people that are super sharp and great. And I like being with even you guys, <laughs> but you see what I'm getting at. I don't feel like I'd I, like I, to, I, I'd like to point out <laughs> that we used to live in the same state until you moved across country, <laughs> which to me says how much you really like hanging around with us. I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But but you know what I'm getting at, and and you guys have experienced the same things. Yeah, you know, you guys have had the the offers, you, you know that if you had said what people wanted to hear at certain points, you'd be in a whole different room in a oh, whole, yeah. among a whole different group of people. Oh, yeah. You, you pay a price for holding to your class, classical Christian convictions. And, and it, you know, especially if you're going to do work that doesn't compromise them, and especially in the field of theo theology, philosophy or, or history or anything else. I mean, if you have a field that maybe you can you can be an expert in and you, you don't have to put it out there so much. But in theology, it's pretty much, you know, you're going to have to put it out there at, at some point. And and for me, just in good conscience, I couldn't believe the junk that that, you know, passes for much contemporary theology. And I can smell it now when it shows up. I mean, you know what I mean. You, you can smell the things, you know, they're, when they're going to come down the line. But now it's it's everywhere and most you know, publishing houses, you know, it just, yeah, we, uh, we were just, we were just talking about that before yeah, we started the show. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, so it limits your amount and avenues of publication. And the thing is we have rich things and the fact that they shut the door up front thinking you're just going to be their stereotype of what somebody supposedly in your camp is, is all about. Um, it, it's just, you know, Again, it, it shows you that there's something else going on in that prejudice um, than, than, you know, somebody who has warrant to, to shut the door on you. Um, it, it is, it, it's an odd thing. But, you know, one of the things I, you know, the, the flip side, I think something else I've noticed increasingly um, is that we, this is a kind of a self-criticism, we as uh, evangelicals in some sense are those that hold to a kind of evangelical orthodoxy and um, have, have really embraced in many ways without even necessarily wanting to affirm it, a kind of tolerance that other generations of Christians probably wouldn't have held to and a kind of tolerating relativism that says, okay, let's live and let live as long as you let us pronounce and live in our way. And I was reading just recently the way in which after Constantine converted and the peace was made and there was a kind of toleration finally of Christians, the Christians weren't all that tolerant uh, when they started to rise up the ranks. They started to fight pagan issues and idolatry where it was to be found and, and argued their case. And one of the things I've been reading and studying lately is 
kind of the way in which evil has been eclipsed, the whole terminology and the whole language of sin is very... How many books do you see recently coming out on sin and evil, right? Very few, and very few that engage it. And part of it is the modern antenna for it isn't there. We don't even have a social imagination. So when someone like Lewis comes along and he retrieves the rich insights of classic thinking on it, all of a sudden, it is the, the door is shut and the imagination is not able to handle it in, in even church contexts, much less, much less uh, you know, modern and postmodern contexts. So I think that there's a lot of things that we can draw upon to, to up our game in the fight. Let me tell you one thing. The left has its own working definition of evil as problematic as it is, and they're not afraid to label or fight with it. And until we realize they're not interested in peace, they're not interested in harmony, they're interested in eliminating you and me, that it's until we get a hold of that that we realize what kind of fight we're in and what evil they really are and, up, and what we're up against with them. And I don't think we, we need to hold back on that. Yeah, I'd also like to point out that the standard rhetoric against conservative Christians is they're all about culture war. Now, who started it? Right. You know, who, who is the one that made LGBT issues an issue? Who is the one that changed the definition of marriage? Who is the one? Fill in the blank. Any culture war issue you like. Who is the one that did the changes? And then they accuse us of engaging in culture war when we oppose them on these things, when we oppose the changes that they are imposing on us. Yeah, there's a French witticism. You probably know it. Uh, this animal is very wicked. When it's attacked, it fights back. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's us. We're very wicked because we fight back. Yeah. Yeah, well, they've labeled us the wicked that they are the liberation. They, they again, they, a mock salvation. I mean, that was uh, De Lubeck's point. When, when did Christianity, which was seen as that which delivered us from the enslavement of gods, becomes the enslavement to which you need liberation from? And uh, it, it, it's very, it is very much, it's a sinister, you know, uh, flip that is going on there. But I think you're right. I think sometimes we we play to it in a way that we think liberal tolerance and live and let live and if we could just get a hearing somehow we're going to to you know show how you know soft but, we are but at the at the, and i guess that's the point when we do finally do get the hearing what do we use it for yeah well we use it for uh chastising our brothers and sisters that's yeah. what we use it for instead of yeah. Uh, standing on the soapbox and saying to the folks over at uh, New York Times, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about uh, all those wonderful people in the evangelical world who yeah. on a daily basis, you know, uh, take their kids to school, uh, pay their taxes, work hard. Uh, are we perfect? Of course not. Nobody's perfect. Is there, are there other parts of the country that are, are praiseworthy? Sure. We're not saying that we're the only ones, uh, but what we, what we, you know, where is the Tertullian? Yeah. You know, uh, where is, you know, where are the apologists who in antiquity would uh, taunt yeah. the pagans and say, the only thing we've left you is your temples. We're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, now, so triumphalism, 
You know, that was, it was, it was there, baby. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Satan has been defeated. How, how much more confident can you get as a people understanding that in your baptism, you're called the battle and basically battle a defeated enemy and the confidence the church has under that banner rather than, Oh, shrieking in fear at world, worldly power didn't threaten people whose Lord is resurrected from the dead. And, and that is a very different way of engaging the world from that realization that neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come are able to stop what's going on here. There is another dimension to this, and that is uh, the the effeminacy of so much of the church. Um, women uh, are are very often a marvelous source of consolation and. They work hard at getting along with each other and encouraging others to get along with each other. Um, doesn't mean they can't uh, stand up for themselves, but uh, when it when a community needs um, a uh, defender, uh, it's generally uh, interested in somebody who can defend himself first of all, <laughs> and then go you know who can go out and defend other people and is virile enough to say. Um, it's time, it's time we stand up for ourselves. It's time that we put things right. And now I guess maybe, maybe we could, we could say things just haven't gotten bad enough yet for many, uh, of the people that we're criticizing to, 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 to sort of own that. Um, they, they tend to think that we're the ones that are stirring things up and causing trouble when in fact we're just, you know, it's like uh, a fight in hockey or in football or baseball. It's the guy that, that retaliates who gets uh, the whistle blown and kicked out of the game. Yeah. It, it, you know, all game long, he's been prodded and poked and punched. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and finally he stands up for himself and gets kicked out of the game. Um, what we need are some uh, evangelical elites who have the, their eyes open enough and their sympathies in the right place to start calling fouls uh, yeah. on the perpetrators. And if it means they don't get in the Atlantic – well, hey, we all make sacrifices, guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, hey, yeah. it's too bad. Yeah. Too bad you're not in the Atlantic anymore. Too bad that they're not calling you at the Washington Post anymore. Too bad that they're not calling you at the New York Times anymore. Well, you paid a price. Yeah. Don't we as Christians uh, have crosses to bear? I mean, that's a pretty small cross. <laughs> you're not getting published by those people anymore. Well, and the thing is, unless we do start naming evil as evil in what we publish and the like, we're not doing anything. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, I mean, that's part of what having any kind of outlet is for. Of course, the gospel mission, lifting up Christ and His meaning and significance for all things, but especially those pressing points that bear on ethical import, um, in particular, or you know, in other areas as well that uh, demand uh, a moral answer, that that uh, that our current culture is giving a horrendous evil answer to. So, so let, let me give you an example of how things could turn in an instant. Let's say, no, I don't read David French very much. I mean, it, I think that it would be like a torturous experience for me if I, if I had to read a series of his articles. But I, I know enough about him to know that he's not known for doing this. So let's say David French... At the New York Times, he's a columnist there. Had a, had a wrote an article and, uh, and said, uh, "My friends in the in the literati, 
I want you to, to, to hear me. I think I understand why these people vote for Trump. It's not because they're wicked. It's not because they're racist. The reason why they vote for him is because we've failed them. There you go. I actually saw one article <laughs> of that sort, but it was written by a secularist. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, you know, instead of confessing our sins, David, uh, you know, uh, you know, why don't you confess uh, the, the sins of your own group? Because yeah. I don't think you're one of us anymore. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the thing that's interesting about all of this to me, I'm, I'm actually going to be writing a breakpoint on this um, by the time, well, it won't be out by the time this is, this is um, released. There's, there's an interesting philosophical thing that's going on here where ethical questions are no longer for the most, well, many ethical questions, at least the ones that the conservatives support, are no longer considered ethical questions. They're epistemological questions. In other words, well, we can't really know when human life begins. You know, we, we, can't, we don't really know what a woman is. We don't really know, you know, fill in the blank. They turn them into epistemological questions where the left is very clear on where their ethical lines are. So they've got their ethical line on anything we define as oppression is evil. Anything yeah. we define as oppression is evil. If you disagree with those lines, it's an epistemological question. We can't really know the answer, so we're right. And their, and their turn to epistemology there is because they, they want to underwrite all interpretation is social construct. That's exactly what they're after. With it. This has been one of the dangers. I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr suffered this danger. As good as he, he was at retrieving certain classical elements of Augustine on, on sin and the like, he still, that subjectivity driving epistemology at the center made Christian worldview basically a, a interpretive construct of the way we would like the world to be as Christians. I think worldview thinking sometimes runs that risk by making it an epistemological rather than a metaphysical mm -hmm. unfolding. We end up just making it as though ours is a better interpretive frame, more coherent and the like. And this, this is exactly plays right into the hands of the left who say, oh yeah, we're fine with that. You just happen to have a very flawed, incoherent, uh, you know, um, lacking a ma modern imagination kind of social construct that's nothing more than just an expression of your own biases, whereas ours, right, um, is, is the one who can play skeptic on the one hand, we can't know, but can then in a pragmatic way develop their own social construct that, that serves their, their, like you said, ethical interest and agenda. So, you know, here we are, uh, we've seen evangelical publishers go over to the other side. We've seen evangelical seminaries go over to the other side. Now, they're not fully transitioned yet, but we can tell where the winds are blowing. Um, now, there are other institutions that are standing firm, 
Uh, you know, World Magazine is one of those places. Um, we see new institutions being established. You know, new Sanders College is an example. If we think about the academy, you've got Hillsdale, of course. Um, but uh, is there any hope for sort of turning the tide? And if there is, how is it done? Now, I don't have any great theories or great proposals to make. Uh, I'm just raising the question and to see if you guys have anything that comes to mind. Well, I, I think at the end of the day, we are what we're called to do, we're called to do regardless of the circumstances. And we're called to do what we're called to do regardless of the results. So it seems to me that the key thing that we need to do is in our own spheres, act faithfully and speak fearlessly, um, recognizing that you know, th this is, I'm going to get in trouble with some of my listeners here, but this is where I think is the weakness of modern post-millennialism in that scripture does not anticipate that the church is going to fail. That much is true that there's no hint in scripture that the church will fail in its mission. There is also no hint in scripture that the world will ever cease being hostile to the gospel. Both are true. And the hostility to the gospel is going to be there regardless. I mean, no matter how well we do or how poorly we do in Christianizing a culture, that hostility is always going to be there. Um, and we just have to be ready for it. You know, uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, if the world hates you, they hate you because they hated me first. We have all of these things where Jesus and James and others are warning us that, that we're going to be facing the hostility of the world. Okay, get used to it. Don't try to appease them because you're never going to succeed. If you go in that direction, it's a, it's a slope that isn't only slippery, it's greased. So let me let me uh, say a couple of thought give, give a couple of responses. One is is and I, as I look at the lay of the land uh, in the in the evangelical world, the places where I see the firmest resistance to some of the trends that we see uh, are in uh, certain parts of uh, the reform world, and many times those uh, folks are theonomists and postmillennial. Mm -hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that's the only place where we see resistance. I think we see resistance among, you know, uh, some people that we refer to as dispensationalists, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of hardcore King James only types. <laughs> you know, we, we could go down the list and, and yeah. identify, you know, group after group that. But I, I, guess, I, would, I, I would actually say, Chris, that the that having said that, I, you know, I see a theological or an exegetical weakness in post-millennialism, because it doesn't take that, that side into account, I've got to agree with you. They are among the best people at doing this. Yeah. Now, the, the, the ones that always seem to get into trouble are the ones who are trying to build bridges. Mm -hmm. These are the people, I can't tell you the number of, of people who I know who uh, are apostate today, who uh, were on the forefront of building bridges. Yeah. You know, and what they meant by building bridges is blurring lines. Yeah. Um, and 
Now, building, you know, blurring a line and uh, identifying common ground are different things. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you got to have a line that you present to somebody so that that person can cross over from the world and uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. <laughs> In other words, there's light and darkness we're talking about here. <laughs> and there's a line that separates them. But a lot of these people spend all of their time trying to blur that line. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, they're, they, they're on the other side of it. Right. And, and I think, you know, something that this has always been a, a little bit of a weak point on, and I say this out of love for evangelicals, is because it's a big umbrella, in a sense. Um, it doesn't have one, for example, ecclesiology view of the church. And because of that, the, and, where, and, and if you understand Christian theology well, the church is not an incidental. It's not something you can brush to the side, right? I mean, the fact that we have... We are made for God first. That's a completion of our end, means the state is not the final end towards our actions, nor our worldly political life, but the church and its mission, right? The building of a temple on Christ, the cornerstone. Um, Because of that, I think I'm very excited about the strong confessional resourcement going on in the wide swath of evangelicals, whether it be a Reformed Baptist, whether it be the, you know, kind of uh, uh, classical evangelical um, Presbyterian, wherever. But I do think that this kind of work is rich. It is providing a set of, of rigorous resources for people to think through and spiritual practices to engage the culture with the right kind of, of tools that we don't even yet know the the result of this. This is exciting. I mean, this is what you happen has happened in any kind of spiritual reform whatsoever. I mean, and and you've also seen it. Um, you see it very much with with people not having to. Well, let's put it this way: people that are not naive in the kind of ideas that are being inculcated and they're starting to have an antenna of not embracing those which maybe a previous generation of people educated in our institutions embraced uncritically. And so we do have, I think, a generation, an army of people. I I, I read stuff every day. You wouldn't have read this even 10 years ago. A lot of evangelicals drawing off of this rich um, history of culture, Christian culture and faith that helps illumine the way in which we can engage with a richer wisdom, these things. And I don't mean this just on the level of the intellect, because I don't think that's where this is one. I think on the level of, well, like St. Augustine did in the City of God, his argument was, this is what you hold, this is what you value, this is what you love. I have something so much richer, there is no comparison. And we, until we see the pearl of great price that way, and, and instead of looking for ways to bridge gaps with something we think has a, a shareable worth, um, Augustine would say, no, wait a minute, anything good in what you have, we, it, it comes from what we have, but it's incomplete. And that incompletion is going to cause damage and is causing damage. When it's more complete, it brings about true beatitude, uh, even in this life. So let me let me throw in one last wrinkle to to sort of have you guys uh, sort of uh, respond to before we wrap up because we're getting near the end here. I have a theory uh, concerning um, second and third generation evangelicals. So the three of us are all first generation, 
I know our stories. Um, now, the good news is in my case, um, and I know in your case uh, cases that, you know, we have children who are in the faith. But um, much of the embarrassment that I witness is uh, embarrassment that I think um, exemplifies the outlook of, say, second-generation, upper-middle-class evangelicals. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're this close to the prize, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they've got the education. They, they, they know that they're as smart as their secular counterparts. Uh, they've got the connections. They've gone to many of the right schools. They find themselves in many of the right, uh, you know, corporations, uh, whatever. And uh, they're making good money. And the last thing that is standing in their way of full uh, sort of uh, advance is this, their Christian faith. I remember years ago uh, listening to Garrison Keillor on the Prairie Home Companion. You remember him, right? Now, here, there's a guy who, who <laughs> you know, whose career ended in disgrace. Mm -hmm. But there was a time where he was in the good graces of everybody, and he'd had a, and, uh, uh, an evangelical upbringing, and in fact, in a pretty legalistic tradition. And uh, he, he made an illustration one time. He said, you know, uh, it's sort of like having six toes, having this childhood you don't want to take off your shoe. <laughs> In other yeah. words, you don't want it. You don't, don't want it to become the object of ridicule or or get the attention of people. So you just kind of cover it up. You don't yeah. want to talk about it. So part of the cover up has to do with adopting, uh, you know, fashionable beliefs, uh, and they can, you know, initially be fashionable beliefs with Jesus added. Yeah. So yeah. I'm anti-racist too. Jesus yeah. was even more anti-racist yeah. than, yeah. than, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, instead of just, uh, so how to deal with that is, is I think, a challenge. Um, and I don't have anything to present at this point, other than the fact that, you know, my kids um, have been able to weather that and are strong and they've got um, all of the opportunities that anybody could want to, to have that would, you know, be, would, would be, it'd be advantageous to them to, to walk away from the faith, to pursue other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, that's a, I think one of the big challenges and I don't know that we're always going to be, you know, successful from our own end um, because, because the temptations that are out there and much less the, the way in which the polarization is such that, you know, no one likes to be disliked. Um, no one likes to be, you know, basically, you know, labeled what they love to label. And so the more that it becomes intense, the, the more you're going to see children shy away from expressing some of this. If they're, you know, if, if they're in that place where they, you've got to make it in the world somehow, and, and they're going to have to interact and, and find ways to deal with things. And, you know, I was looking, well, again, I'm, I'm looking at classic insights from, from the church, especially during the Roman Empire, where some of these things came up. I mean, one of the big issues that Augustine deals with was, you know, the Christian commitment to fidelity and virginity. 
And what is interesting with Augustine is he's not on the defensive with any of that, even though he's providing a rational kind of defense. He's not on the defensive. He sees these as points of liberation and control that others don't have. He turns these things away from letting them be interpreted by those kinds of narratives that redefine them as a bad and as you missing out on something and puts it in, this is someone who lives transcendently. And again, that's one thing to talk to kids about who may not get it. But I do think we do fall in the trap of being defensive sometimes and not showing just how alternatively healthy our vision is. And kids, I mean, I remember I had a, 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 a pastor who was trying to teach his kids, you know, about the, the severity of, of drugs and drunkenness, right? And one day he was just uh, traveling through the inner city and had to go to renew his license. And he saw a, a man on the side of the road throwing up and, you know, and peeing all over himself. And his child was impressionable. And he said, yeah, that's where drugs can take you. So that thing stayed with that child all of his life, seeing that that isn't a freedom you have to go enjoy a party. This is something that can actually make you pee on yourself in public. And again, you know, I don't know that we can find places like that everywhere, but what a, what a moment in which that the liberation we have as Christians, rather than we're hindering you from certain kinds of things, um, well, I, I, I do think, Tom, that we're going to see more and more opportunity uh, in in this respect. I think um, the problems that will follow from uh, many of the things that we are celebrating today uh, are going to create such a profoundly powerful backlash. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I think that I think that fifty years from now we might see a new Puritanism um, when it comes to sexual matters, particularly that uh, no one could possibly have anticipated. That's probably a good sign to wrap up the show. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> okay, Glenn, Glenn, do you have anything you want to say as we do? Glenn, uh, we're not hearing you, Glenn. <laughs> Maybe it's Glenn. <laughs> I, I, I'm not seeing anything on that. <laughs> Anyway, it's been good to see you, Glenn. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Theology Podcast. We better end the show before Tom's computer blows up. <laughs> All right. That's it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.